God is sovereign and what that means is he has the right to rule over his creation and rule it he does. We've heard so far the author of this book uh, pondering the things of life. We've listened to him talk about the meaningless of life without God. Yet behind all that is his belief that God has determined the way this world progresses. The obvious question this raises is whether man can accept that God has determined all things. When Job was in the middle of his affliction, he wrestled with his own thoughts. Several times he found himself arguing with God about his situation, but he soon realised it was pointless to argue against the will of God. This chapter of Ecclesiastes presents us with several more examples of pointless lives, and I'd like to look at them briefly. Then, I'd like to focus a bit on a statement which is central to this segment of Scripture, where the main character, Kohelet, or the preacher, comes to the same conclusion Job did. We cannot argue with God's purposes, his roadmap for history. Well, the first example we come to is found in verse 2. It's about a man who God gives um, generously to, uh, in a material way anyway. So he has plenty of money. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Plenty of money. If any of you have a million pounds sitting in the bank and you feel burdened to give it to me, I want you to know that that is okay. That is not sinning. Okay. But, you know, wealth has its advantages. You can choose where to live. You can choose the type of house you live in. And so on. And... With all that wealth, you can start to collect possessions and you can fill the house with all kinds of junk from the range or wherever you go. Everyone in the house can have their own car. You're not forced to shop for all your clothes at Primark. You can go to a posh shop. You don't have to look for food with the little yellow labels on going cheap because the pastor sell by date. No, you can have all the best of everything. And in this example also, it mentions honour in that verse. This man is respected and liked by the people who know him and presumably lots of people want to be his friends. That means he gets to pick, pick his friends, pick the best ones, the least annoying ones to be his friends. It goes on there to say, he has everything he wants. Yet, the God who gave him his wealth and his honour has deprived him of the ability 
to enjoy them. The man, I expect, believes there's a level of wealth which, if when he reaches that, it will bring him the pure happiness and satisfaction that, that he wants, that we all want. But if there is such a thing, if there is such a level, he never finds it. Maybe, I imagine he uh, sometimes would question his own logic. But then he soon returns to his old plan. And right to the very end of his life, he dedicates his efforts to having more. And then finally, on his deathbed, when he realises that all his wealth will be enjoyed by someone else, he experiences that feeling of emptiness that Kohelet warns of. The next example is in verse 3. In the culture of this day, a man would a man would count himself blessed if he had lots of children. Hmm. My kids are looking at me thinking he's going to come out with some sarcastic comment. And, uh, I'm tempted, but I won't. You see, this back then was an important matter. This is why women then who were infertile would go to God in prayer and ask him, to remove their barrenness, allow them to have a child, because in that day it was seen as uh, an absence of God's blessing. Long life, long life was also considered a blessing from God, and people back then, believe it or not, would commonly live to what we would call old age. This man is given a long life. He can use it to travel, he can have lots of experiences, he can watch his children grow up. But again, as a judgment of God, the man cannot find happiness at all. There are plenty of people who've travelled to different parts of the world secretly thinking that they'll find themselves, they'll, they'll They'll find meaning in their life. But when they finished taking all the pictures and being culturally enriched, they realised that travel, for all its benefits, is just another dead end. And it's the same with other experiences. People without God, they try to find meaning in life by immersing themselves in some, some group, some subculture. It could be a hippie colony, it could be a biker gang, it could be an aid agency in Africa. In my case, I immersed myself in politics, activism, in drinking, people, a culture of drinking too much, ended up with criminal behaviour. But you know, for all their passionate speech about what they're involved in, they still don't know what the point of life is. The peace which comes from God evades them. 
Instead, there you might have noticed in verse 3, the man doesn't even get a proper burial. Now, in ancient cultures, again, well, to be denied a proper burial was often seen as a curse. Sometimes God would judge people by denying them a burial. They'd be slaughtered in battle and be left out in the open for the predators uh, to uh, eat. So this man also is outwardly blessed but inwardly cursed. No wonder the author here says that a stillborn baby is better than him. The baby goes off to its peaceful sleep or darkness with no prospect of having the same dismal experiences as, as this man. My last example is in verse 6. Verse 6, it, it's, really, it's really though an extension of the previous example. It asks us to imagine this man doesn't live just to 60 or 70 or even a, a hundred years old, what if that man lived to be a thousand years old? And what if he could then have another thousand years to go back and try again and avoid all the mistakes he's made the first time round? It sounds great, it would be great, unless he didn't enjoy it. God can give a man all these material blessings and give them the ability to enjoy them. But what a terrible judgment from God it would be if a man could live for 2,000 years but couldn't find an enjoyment, couldn't, be, couldn't find any satisfaction. What's more, the end of that verse 6 it reminds us that although, although it takes that man a lot longer to get there, his inevitable destiny is the same grave as that stillborn child. No matter how long he lives, death is waiting on the horizon. So in those three verses, we, we have pictured for us people who outwardly have everything, but inwardly there is a vacuum. And then we can think of Christians, think of Christians who outwardly might have very little, but inwardly they are full of the blessings of God. What if someone feels aggrieved at their situation? They may not be happy because they've got lots of money but they can't get any enjoyment out of it. They may have very little and think it's unfair. Or perhaps God has afflicted them with some disability they don't think they deserve. What should such a one do? What do you do when you're dissatisfied with the rubbish in the streets, 
or your living conditions or at the workplace, well, you go and complain to whoever's in charge. When we think about what life has dealt us, some will want to protest to God. And after all, all those local councillors and uh, business managers are subject to a much higher power. Why not just go straight to the top and not take it up with God and get things changed? Well, the first thing I want to consider together is found in verse 10. It says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's not known that what man is, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. A looser, uh, perhaps more helpful translation says, Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. There's no use arguing with God. So this, this principle that it is improper and impossible to argue with the way God does things is what I'd like to look at in the time we have available. And I want to mention three things. And here's the first thing. It's that we cannot argue with God's providence. We cannot argue with God's providence. Now, I began by giving you a rough definition of God's sovereignty. But not only does God have the right to rule, he exercises it. He governs this creation and he has been throughout the thousands of years since he made it. And this wise management of the world, his world, we call that God's providence. Bible, you might know, it sometimes uses language which suggests God changes his mind. As if something happens and he has to react quickly. He has to adapt and come up with a new plan. But that sort of language should be viewed for what it is. Friends, you know this. We can understand what God is like only partially and in influencing the people who wrote the Bible God led them to use language which describes them in human ways he has to do that so we can get some idea of what he is like God for example is said to wave a sword around He's said to sit in heaven with his feet planted on the earth. We don't understand those things literally. And in the same way, we shouldn't think of God as, you know, changing his plans every five minutes because we've 
messed things up. God has a plan, a purpose which spans all the ages of time. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing man does can frustrate God's all-wise purposes. Even if man was granted a special audience with the King of Kings, he'd be unable to persuade God that there's a better way. It says in Proverbs 21 and verse 30, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. There's no better purpose than that which God has ordained. Nothing which has taken place could have been done any better by God. <clears throat> and this should discourage us, friends, from complaining about our circumstances. God has put you where you are right now. You might think of your present condition as a result of thousands of uh, decisions that you've made in life. You decided to come here today. You could have stayed at home. That sort of thinking. The truth, whether you like it or not, is that the providence of God overrules man's plans. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said in a prayer to God. I know, Lord, that our lives are not our own. We are not able to plan our own course. We don't have the intelligence or the wisdom to question God's providence. Even if God gave us permission to plan our lives, it would be a failure because we don't know what is for the best. It says there in verse 12, Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? We don't. If you turn back a few pages to chapter 3 and verse 14, The preacher had already told us, uh, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. We cannot argue then with God's providence. Secondly, neither can we argue with God's election. <clears throat> God's Election. Let me try to give a rough definition of God's election. Nothing to do with voting. It is a term we find in the Bible. And it means, it means this. Before God created the world, he created a plan of salvation. It involved the race of mankind which he was about to create. All of mankind were destined to choose sin rather than righteousness. And all of them 
should quite rightly be condemned for their sin. But, out of mankind, God elected, chose a great multitude of those people to receive his mercy. And so down through the ages of history, God has been causing those elect people to be born into this world. And at some point in each of their lives, he's brought them into contact with the message of the gospel. He's called a change to take place in their hearts, which brings them to see the vileness of their nature and the penalty that they should pay. He's given them a desire to repent of their sin and see Christ as the Saviour he is. And he's forgiven their sins. He's wiped them out. One by one, he draws them in. They become citizens of his kingdom. They become his sons and daughters. And it's then they each come to realise they're one of God's elect. They were on his list. It says here in Ephesians, I'm reading from the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today, your adoption into God's family was predestined, it says. You were earmarked for salvation before there was even a planet Earth. And the knowledge of this helps us to understand that all the, all the details of the, the sacrifice which made your salvation possible, they were determined, they were pre, um, predestined also. So from the very earliest times, God gave promises about the future Christ. He included in the Mosaic law pointers to Christ. He, he then raised up prophets to declare the salvation of Christ. He prepared a body for the arrival in this world of Christ. He arranged the details of the life and the ministry of Christ. He planned the illegal arrest and trial of Christ. He brought about the death of Christ. He exercised his power in resurrecting Christ and in welcoming him back to his right hand 
he gladly restored the glories of Christ to him. I found many Christians have difficulty accepting God's uh, election and every other aspect of, of their predestination. Uh, as it happens, this question came up uh, in our Sunday evening Bible study last week, and we looked at the scripture in the book of Romans, and I'm going to read some of that again uh, to you. It's from Romans chapter 9. Verses 13 to 21. Don't try to get, don't try to figure this passage out today. That's not our purpose exactly, but some of it is relevant. The Apostle says, As it is written in the Old Testament, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion, sorry, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter not right over the clay to make out the same one, one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? This is the complaint of the people Paul was aiming this at. The same complaint we hear in the churches even today. They say it's unfair that God decided to save some and condemn others. They don't like it that God chose to set his love on this boy Jacob but showed no love whatsoever to Jacob's brother Esau. Paul borrows his picture from the Old Testament. God, God has this lump of clay, his own clay. And he decides to use some of that clay to make a beautiful vase, say. Uh, the type that would go on the mantelpiece in the home. And it would take pride of place and it would be maybe passed down through the generations like an heirloom. It'll stand there as a testimony to the creative genius of its maker. People will even be able to see the love that went into making it. The same craftsman uses some of the same clay to make a scruffy old ashtray for use in the shed. Would anyone say that that man, that that potter, that craftsman, was wrong for choosing to make two very different objects with his own clay? Then according to the logic of the prophet Isaiah and the logic of the Apostle Paul, man has no right to complain about the idea of God's 
election. God, my friends, can save whoever he wants. Curiously for me, it's not so much the lost people of this world who complain most about this doctrine. It's the believers. Believers who object most. It's those who... They're the ones who should understand that God has the right to show mercy to whoever he wants. They can object to it all they want. God will continue to save in his way. We cannot argue with God's election. Here's my last point. We cannot argue with God's instruction. We cannot argue with God's instruction. Seeing as we've been talking about God planning everything in man's existence in advance, it might seem strange to us to then talk about the need to obey God. Someone might say to me, if everything is set in stone, brother, then we may as well just do nothing. That describes a very real belief uh, among some people of this world. It's, it's a type of fatalism. I know um, many of the Islamic nomads live according to that philosophy. You know, if God in his providence is, is arranging the whole of history, why bother? Why bother doing anything at all? Hmm. The same God who clearly declared that he predetermined everything according to his infinite wisdom instructs us to obey him. If you look at it from one point of view, I agree, it doesn't make much sense. In reality, it makes perfect sense, just not to us. In the mind of God, whose intelligence is infinite, the logic of it all is perfect. Unfortunately, we don't have infinite intelligence. We're unable to see these things as God sees them, because we're not God. Someone might ask then, well, how do we, how do we function with these, these things? Well, for, for the one who's been saved from their sin, it's quite easy, really. For people like yourself who've been saved from sin, it's quite easy. We like being slaves of God. We, we like serving him. And when he tells us to do something, we, we just want to do it. We, we don't need to know the ins and outs of, of everything, of the philosophy of it. We simply love God and we love to obey him. It doesn't matter, we can't work it out. Why do we tell people, the people of this world, about the salvation which is in Christ? I mean, God's already decided who he's going to save. No amount of activity or inactivity from us will change that, surely. We don't care. We don't care. Our Lord instructs us to testify to others about Jesus Christ saving sins like us. And when a sinner repents and joins us as a fellow servant of God, we rejoice. And when, despite all our prayers, someone continues in the rebellion, we mourn. 
We don't understand the deep things of God, but we don't care. He tells us to plant the seed of the gospel in the hearts of men, women and children, and we do it with enthusiasm. We don't know who God is going to save and whose heart he's going to harden, but we don't care. He tells us to pray for the salvation of the people in our lives, and we do it with fervency. The Christian who's submitting to God will love that there are things they don't understand. God's ways are higher than our ways. He reminds us in the scriptures. So, we cannot argue with God's instructions. What about what about the person who's outside the kingdom, who hasn't experienced adoption into the family of God? Some of them will try to put barriers up, you know, reasons not to believe on Christ. They'll accuse God of being unfair or illogical. The message for such a one is found in verse 10. You are not able to dispute with God, the one far stronger than you. We don't dispute with God. We do our duty. Hopefully, he'll give us the joy of seeing others come to Christ. And we can nurture them into a joyful acceptance of God's absolute sovereignty, his wise providence, and his electing love towards them. Amen.